News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What makes you laugh? Like, how would you describe your sense of humor? These things can be subjective, right? They're different for people. For instance, and yes, I may get in trouble for this. I'm going to say it anyway. I'm not a huge fan of the movie Dumb and Dumber. Okay, there, I said it. I mean, I get that people find it absolutely hilarious. Please do not email me trying to convince me otherwise. I find it mildly amusing, but not the laugh out loud movie that so many people love. However, I love Zoolander. I, I, that movie is laugh out loud funny to me. And so many people I know just don't think it's funny. So just like with people, some are pretty funny and make you laugh all the time. And then there are the people who maybe don't. So if you're one of those people, is it possible to become funnier? Well, some would really like to. Adam Mastuini might be able to help you with that. He's an experimental psychologist and author of the Experimental History Newsletter. Adam, thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me. Can you teach people to be funny? <laughs> uh, well, some people think that I can. So in, in my other life, I, uh, I teach and perform improv comedy. And so I get a lot of people coming into class who are like, I'm here to be funnier. And, uh, and the thing about teaching improv is one, one of the top rules is don't tell jokes and people are really confused about this. Um, and so I, I tried to figure out some way of explaining that I can't make you funnier in the way that you hope that I can, but I can make you funnier in a different way. Basically, there are two ways of being funny and people want to be the wrong one. Okay. What are the two ways of being funny? So this is how I've come to think of it over, over trying to teach this for a while. I think there are the kind of people who are funny to listen to. Uh, and so I call these people jokers. These are the kind of people who make good stand-up comedians or writers. They can come up with a joke from scratch on their own. But there's also people who are funny not just to listen to but to talk to. Um, and I think of these people as jammers. These are the kind of people who make good improvisers. Uh, or improv comedians, but they also make good people to have a conversation with. And so I think when people think about getting funnier, they think about becoming a joker, being the kind of person who could uh, who could like write a punchline. Um, but I think that actually isn't that useful for most people's lives most of the time. It does come in handy in some situations. What people really want to be able to do is to is to laugh with someone, to make a good conversation with someone. And that's actually a separate skill. Getting better at the first one doesn't actually make you better at the second one. Uh, yeah. In fact, getting better at being a joker uh, can often just make you annoying in most conversations. <laughs> That's so true. It sounds like what people really are asking you, though, is can you teach them how to have a different sense of humor? Yeah. And uh, I always kind of feel like, no, I can't, I can't do that. I can't change who you are as a person, but I can give you some skills. And I think there are skills that make people better at having a good time with other people. And I think this is really what people want, even if they don't realize it. Um, they, they want to be liked and they want to connect with other people more than they just want other people to laugh at their jokes. I think the reason we want people to laugh at our jokes is because we think that means that they like us, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean the case. Like people could laugh at people that they don't actually like. So and true. I see this all the time in improv classes where like, yeah, there's this funny person, but he's a jerk. And when the whole class goes out for a drink afterward, they're not going to invite him. Even though he got some laughs, uh, he didn't get friends. Okay, so let's talk about the ways in which people can improve their sense of humor in order to be perhaps liked a little more. Is that possible? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think of this l less as, uh, I guess, improving your sense as improving your skills. So this is what happens in an improv comedy class that, that you come in and it's not about here's how to structure a good punchline or here's how to have good timing. It is here's how to listen um, and here's how to take seriously uh, the things that other people say and build on them. So a lot of people know the rule from improv called yes and, which is where I agree to the reality that you're created, creating and I add to it. I think that rule is fine. I actually like the second rule a lot better, which is treat your scene partner like a genius. Uh, so basically, Act as if the things that they say could be interesting and cool to talk about, and magically those things will become interesting and cool to talk about. And I think that's not just a good, good rule for improv. That's a good rule for life. Because when I'm in a conversation with someone who treats me like I could be interesting, I become more interesting. 
But when I'm in a conversation with someone who who thinks that uh, that I'm boring, I become more boring. Um, it's a performance. There, be times like you're when, you're, when you're like, talking about putting yes, on a performance. Yes. Uh, well, I think uh, putting on a performance, I, I think, is exactly the way that people think about this when they're like, oh, I want to be a joker. I want people to pay attention to me and to laugh at me. I don't want to put on a performance. I want to be in a performance with someone else. I want us both to be on stage. I don't want to be on stage while they're in the audience, and I don't want to be in the audience while they're on stage. There are times when I want to do that. I'm happy to listen to someone's funny story. But most of the time, I want us to be up here as peers. And sometimes I'm making you laugh, and sometimes you're making me laugh. But mainly we're laughing with each other. Those are, uh, are, I find, the most enjoyable experiences. Okay, so taking all of that into account then, Adam, where, where should somebody even start? If they recognize that, yeah, I've got to learn to kind of loosen up a little bit, where should they start? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think a, g- a good place, place to start is realizing that like you're, you're not going to get there by getting better at doing jokes. Um, and that, that's a big hurdle, I find, for people to get over when, when they want to be funnier. Um, the, the next step, I mean, this is kind of what an improv class is for if you go in with the right mindset. Although, as, a, as I write in the piece, you can't take a bad one. I was once in an improv class where the teacher was like, every scene has to get to God or Hitler in 90 seconds. And I think all of us were worse for, <laughs> for having that, that experience. That's harsh, yes. Uh, um, but, but this is what you get trained to, to do, to, to pay attention to the kinds of things that um, – that your scene partners are doing um, and to react to them, uh, to think less about yourself, that whenever you you go into your own mind thinking about like, how do I win this four-dimensional chess game of interacting with another person? How do I uh, like unlock their liking of me? To let those voices pass and go like, how do I pay more attention to what this person is saying and find what I think is interesting or weird about it? I have another article about this called uh, Good Conversations Have Lots of Doorknobs. Um, which is basically that, that like a, a good conversation is one in which I make it easy for you to say your next thing. Um, and you can do this both through asking good questions, but also through making good statements. Right. Is it about um, generosity so, then yeah. in conversation, do you think? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people think that being generous in a conversation means asking questions, but there are generous questions and ungenerous questions, uh, questions that make it easy for the other person to like give an interesting answer and a question that makes it hard. So like questions like, how many cousins do you have? See, it seems generous because I'm asking you, it's your turn to speak. Right. But the, there's no way of giving a very good answer like uh, seven. Uh, but, but a question like, oh, how did you come to be interested in this thing that you do? Uh, or like, I have this impression of like what it's like to do this job that you do. Is that impression right or, uh, or is that wrong? Questions that allow people to open up and, give, and tell you something interesting. That's really what a conversation is. It's a, a series of invitations to say something interesting to the next statement. And you can make that easier for someone or you can make it harder. And so you could also do this without a question mark, uh, like saying something that ma- makes it easy for people to respond. And so in, in this piece about conversational doorknobs, I talk about givers and takers, people who think that uh, givers think that conversations unfold as a series of invitations. Like I, I ask you, you ask me. Takers think that conversations unfold as a series of declarations, like I say my thing, you say your thing. You can do both of these things well. Neither of them is necessarily better than the other, but both of them can be done generously or ungenerously. Like I can I can say something wild that allows you to go like, oh, that's weird. Here's what I think of it. And I can ask you a question that, that allows you to open up and tell me something interesting. Or I can make statements that give you no leeway, <laughs> nothing to, right. to respond to. And I can ask you questions that make you look boring. I, I like what you're saying here because it's about the generosity. So much, so often, I think today, especially, people think that being funny almost means like being mean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm a psychologist by day. There's some research on this where people. Uh, think that if you want to look smart, you should be critical. And if you want to look friendly, you should look dumb. Um, uh, and so some of my oldest research is, is about uh, people doing this and responding to humor that the people thought that they would look smarter if they said that jokes were dumb um, and, uh, and that they would look friendlier if they said the jokes were good. Uh, in fact, they were right that they looked friendlier when they said jokes were good, but it didn't do anything to people's perceptions of how smart they are. Like they were wrong that they could influence other people's right. opinions of their own competence by being critical of humor. So the kind of person who's standing uh, in the circle with their arms crossed going, that's not funny, may, may think they look like a wise critic, 
they they just they look don't. like a wet blanket. <laughs> they look like a jerk is what they look <laughs> yeah. like, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, who knew yeah. that this could be so, that humor could be so interesting and not necessarily funny, but just fascinating at the same time. So Adam, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. That was so interesting. That's Adam Mastoini, who's an experimental psychologist and author of the Experimental History Newsletter, talking about being funny. It is a little harder for some people, but I think he's absolutely right that generosity in conversation is often the answer to that, too, for some people. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I've been looking forward to this since yesterday, talking to Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. You know why, Vaughn? Because it's our favorite topic, right? Yes, Simi, you know, I'm second to none as a fan of the village people. But for this morning, I'm going with MC Hammer because it's hammer time in (laughs) Surrey. You know, I didn't have that on my card for today about you quoting MC Hammer on the show. Well, you know, back when the New Democrats brought in the new changes to the Police Act and said, we're going to push forward with the policing transition to the new standalone Surrey Police Force in Surrey, I mean, it's going to happen. The legislation included a clause at the end that basically said, you know what, if this thing doesn't work out and we don't get going on this soon, the provincial government can step in replace the police board out there, sideline the mayor, and appoint an administrator to complete the process. Uh, That raised the hammer. (laughs) And yesterday, Mike Farnworth brought it down. He got rid of the police board out in Surrey, sidelined it. The mayor chairs the police board. She no longer has a role. And the administrator is now Mike Farnworth's hand-picked overseer, Mike Sear, the uh, former police chief in Abbotsford, Mm. retired now, and he's taking charge. Uh, He's got it. He will be in charge. The mayor and the police board have nothing more to do with it. And by the way, Simi, he's in place for 18 months. So this process is not completed yet, but from now on, it is the provincial government's show. Oh, boy. Okay. So what were the reasons given for this? Well, you know, the first thing is, um, Farmer said it, he, a while ago, he appointed the former head of the provincial public service, Jessica McDonald. She was the head of the public service under Gordon Campbell, and he appointed her, Farmworth did, as his on-site strategic advisor. According to Farmworth, McDonald reported back that it just wasn't happening out there. They are foot dragging in Surrey. The mayor had no enthusiasm for this at all, and she never made any doubt about that, that she was still not supportive of the idea of going or sticking with the Surrey Police Service. She wanted to go back to the RCMP, and it was just dragging on and on and on. And so Farmer said the advice he got was step in, take charge, and do it. The looming deadline on this was the 30th of November. The budget has to be finalized for policing services in Surrey. The people out there are paying for two police services. So it had to be finalized by November the 30th. And that was the decision. Now's the time to step in. Interesting, Simi, I would notice that this week, Premier David Eby complained as well that the province has been asking the federal government for months Can you please clarify what is the future of the RCMP as a provider of local policing services in Canada? And EB said it is incredibly frustrating. The province still hasn't gotten an answer on that. Uh, There are still reports that the RCMP is short of officers and so forth. So I think, you know, that was kind of the last straw as well. But the main driver here, Simi, was... Time is running out on the budget. Mm -hmm. Nothing is happening out there at the speed it needs to happen. And so farmers said, you know, I'm not blaming the police board for this. I mean, come on. He knows, we all know, the obstacle is Brenda Locke and her council majority. Uh, There is no police board anymore, at least not for 18 months or up to 18 months. And the mayor chairs the board, but there's nothing left for her to chair. 
I just want to add a little, as you mentioned it just briefly there, that Globe and Mail story today about the fact that the RCMP is short 1,000 officers. That is a huge number, and they have been short this for years, it said. Yeah, you know, and you know what we're going to hear back that, oh, well, you know, Surrey Policing Services is having trouble attracting officers too, and I'm sure they are. One of the reasons being that, you know, the way things have been going out there, nobody who signed up with the Surrey Policing Services could be 100% sure they were going to be working for the police force out there or collecting severance when the council reversed direction and the council was still dragging its feet. So, you know, uh, I guess, I mean, for the provincial government, the the result here is Brenda Locke is finally out of the picture. You know, there is a potential silver lining in all this for Brenda Locke. And she was pretty angry yesterday. And Farmer said he talked to her and it was a polite conversation, but her press release was, you know, the government is coming in and taking charge. Um, the one thing that Brenda Locke can take away from this is whatever it costs to complete the transition, whatever happens with taxes in Surrey to pay for all this, however much of it is covered by the province and the rest of it has to be picked up by Surrey ratepayers. The one thing she can say in all honesty is when the bills come in, don't look at me. I didn't do this. Right. Talk to Mike Farmworth and a Mike Farmworth's appointee on this. This, this one of the main them. reasons this has taken so long, Simi, is because the province didn't really want to wear the cost of this transition. Right. Now they will. And we'll talk more about Surrey policing later when we have Mike Farnworth join us on the show. But also, interesting weekend for the NDP, Vaughn. Yeah, they're uh, in convention in the Capitol, uh, convening today. The Young New Democrats and the Women's Caucus meet. Uh, starting this morning, and then the full convention convenes this evening in Victoria Convention Center. Uh, Policy debates, uh, the Premier speaks on Saturday. National leader Jagmeet Singh speaks on Sunday, and they wrap up. This is the first time New Democrats have met together in person since before the pandemic. Uh, They had a virtual convention during the pandemic, so big deal, and... uh, by uh, It So Happens, Saturday is also the anniversary of David Eby taking the oath of office as Premier of British Columbia. So I expect you'll have something to say about that in his speech Saturday to the delegates. Yes, because it's been a very interesting year, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I did this yesterday to go back to the coverage when Eby took over. And a year ago, and there were and there were doubts in the NDP. The some people in the party didn't think that David Eby had the personable, poly, outgoing, populist gift of the gab that John Horgan had, and they wondered if he could sustain uh, their momentum. Uh, there were New Democrats who tried to persuade Ravi Kalan to run for the leadership. He ruled it out, and they'd had that bitter leadership fight where the party itself squelched a bid by activist Angelia Paterai to run for the leadership and they'd frozen her out. So, you know, there was an open question as to whether or not EB uh, could maintain the momentum or maintain the standing that the party had of being electable under John Horgan. Well, a year later, you know, New Democrats can look at the polls. They all say pretty much the same thing. Whatever you think of what EB's done and hasn't done, he's pretty much hung on to the lead that he inherited from John Horgan. If a provincial election were called tomorrow, there's not much doubt that it would be another term for the NDP. That's interesting because you may remember there was a lot of people, me included, who thought maybe Evie should call a snap election. Ride the wave he inherited from John Horgan, uh, catch the opposition off guard. He chose not to do that. And he's vindicated because the opposition today is more divided than it was when he took over, the NDP is united. It's the opposition that's split in a whole bunch of ways. That's a big change, right? Because it'll be interesting, I guess, to hear some of the scuttlebutt uh, going on around the convention as people are talking. Well, yeah, I, uh, you know, I think we'll be looking around. I mean, last time they met in Victoria, they did have protests. Uh, back then, it was the BCTF that was angry with the New Democrats. 
I am sure there will be some security at this convention over a concern that the crowd that's been protesting around the province uh, about in, in support of the Palestinians show up. I don't think there'll be much of a presence from unhappy New Democrats. As I said, I think the party dealt with that split when they disallowed a patterized candidacy a year ago. And I mean, if you're a New Democrat, what's not to like? You've got still holding the lead in the opinion polls after hmm, you're in many years now in office, uh, starting in 2017. And you look over at the opposition, BC United. I mean, New Democrats, I'm sure, have heard it because most of us have heard it. A lot of grumbling in the opposition about how badly it has gone under Kevin Falcon. Uh, the name change has not clicked, partly because the party doesn't have enough money to pay for a proper rebranding. Uh, Falcon forced John Rustad out of the then BC Liberal Caucus, and that precipitated the rise of the BC Conservatives. I mean, look, it isn't surprising, you know, the New Democrats. I talked to a New Democrat about this the other day, and he said, you know, we went through this in the 1990s. I know what's going on in the opposition. And of course, they're talking about leadership change privately. They're not saying anything publicly. And the mere thought of the idea, I'm sure, infuriates Kevin Falcon. But it's real. It's out there. And of course, when a political party is in the position the party formerly known as the BC Liberals is in, yeah, there's loose talk in the party about leadership change before the next election. And again, New Democrats have to take enormous satisfaction looking at that. When your opponents are divided and fighting among themselves, the government can do its best to just continue on course. It's interesting that conservatives, BC conservatives, seem to have a little bit of money anyway, because I've, I've been getting robocalls at my house. Yeah, the conservatives, well, they started from nothing, so I'm sure they're able to raise money. But, you know, uh, the opposition parties in this province, um, the New Democrats had in place some ability to raise direct from their supporters and members because the federal party had been doing that since the 1970s. The opposition in the province, particularly the BC Liberals and the Socrates before them, they were addicted to the giant checks that were being written by business community and single backers and all that, you know, $50,000 at a dinner with Christy Clark and all that sort of thing. So uh, the one of the biggest things that the Horgan government did to its opposition was they ended the days of big money in politics. And I think if you look at uh, the fundraising out there, the New Democrats are still raising about two bucks for every dollar raised by BC United. The opposition still hasn't adjusted to the end of the days of big money in politics. They still haven't done what, you know, you could point to Pierre Polyev federally. Uh, they haven't done that thing where you get uh, small contributions mm -hmm. relatively from many, many people and end up with a big budget because uh, Polyev does not lack for money uh, up against Justin Trudeau. That is very true. All right. Thank you for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. Have a good weekend. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. Another busy week down in the United States, so let's catch up on all the things that have happened. Our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini, is with us. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Now, we talked to you earlier in the week about this potential agreement between the U.S. and China to crack down on fentanyl production. What happened with that? Uh, so there was an agreement that was put in place. Uh, it kind of was one of the many promises and agreements that were made between the United States and China to kind of reintroduce a friendliness between the two nations. And what China says that it's going to do is limit um, the manufacturing and export of um, ingredients that, that go into fentanyl, therefore kind of making it more difficult to get out of China and into Mexico and into the hands um, of, of kind of you know drug dealers and, and cartels. Whether or not this is going to actually happen, you know, we have to wait and see. It's difficult to kind of, you know, police China in what it is actually doing to to deal with 
you know, issues in its own country. But at the end of the day, this is a win for Biden. It's a win politically. It is a win, obviously, when it comes to the health and welfare of Americans, but also Canadians, too, because this could slow down what is obviously, um, you know, the leading thrust of, of, a, of an ongoing crisis affecting all these countries. Right. OK. And what happened with the Secret Service and the president's granddaughter? So look, this is this is part and parcel of a, a much bigger problem, um, not only here in Washington, D.C., but really around the United States. What happened was the Secret Service who were protecting um, Joe Biden's granddaughter in uh, in Georgetown, which is a more affluent area uh, of the district. They opened fire on on a trio of people who were trying to break into an unmarked Secret Service car. Those people took off. Nobody was hurt. But again, it fits into a pattern here in the district. Um, there have been 750 carjackings since January 1st. There have been 6,000 vehicles stolen since January 1st. And just last week, there was an armed federal um, security guard who was victim of a carjacking and actually fired his weapon and, and killed a juvenile. Um, so Secret Service obviously is now taking part in this investigation. The president's granddaughter wasn't hurt. But the questions here are, why is this such a problem kind of right around the country, especially when the vast majority of these crimes are being committed by people under the age of 16 years old? It, it, it really is kind of a wild situation here in the district where police are actually saying, look, if you're going to be in your car, drive in the center lane, drive with your windows up, wow. make sure that your doors are locked, drive with somebody in your car, don't drive after dark. This is how they're trying to deal with a problem that's now actually found its way all the way up the kind of political line here. That is crazy. Um, also, what happened in the trial this week of the man who was accused of attacking Paul Pelosi? He uh, was was convicted. Uh, he had originally been um, charged with attempting to kidnap a U.S. official. He's now facing 50 years in prison for the charges. What's interesting here is that this, this man who's originally from Powell River, um, he, he he didn't say that he was doing this to try and, um, you know, go after uh, Nancy Pelosi. What he said he was trying to do was to stop government corruption. And I guess when he was on the stand through tears, he was pushing and pitching all of these kind of conspiracy theories about how the government um, is acting in inappropriate ways and thought that this was going to be a way of trying to stymie any of that, um, you know, government corruption. But at the end of the day, uh, this David DePappy is, is, is now facing uh, what could be 50 years in prison. Obviously, the Pelosi family is is grateful for this. They say that, you know, Paul Pelosi is doing much better at this point. But, you know, it goes to show that when you hear these these conversations from, you know, people in, in government, especially if they're on the fringes of government, talking about corruption, that there are people out there who will listen and who will take action. Okay, so speaking of that, in terms of elected officials, I hear there's some progress on the George Santos front. Uh, there's actually progress that was made in the last hour or so, uh, where after the ethics committee came out with uh, a report yesterday detailing a significant number of, of flaws that it found George Santos committed during his election run, including stealing money from people who were donating uh, and using that money for personal luxury items and for you know OnlyFans subscriptions. Um, you know he he has now been found uh, to have been you know in breach of of a number of codes, and within the last hour, uh, the ethics committee has. Put Put forth uh, a motion to expel. They're obviously heading out into the Thanksgiving break. So sometime in the next 10 days, we could see this vote put forward. Might not do much. George Santos says, look, I'm not going to run again next year. He's still fighting back, saying that he's the victim here. But at the end of the day, Republicans didn't want to expel him a couple of weeks ago. They wanted to wait for that ethics report. That ethics report was damning. This could be the first time that we see somebody expelled from the House since 2002. And the first time it's a Republican that will be expelled. It's interesting that he came out, came out this week and said, I'm not going to run again next year. Probably because uh, he's now ha not only does he have a growing number of people turning on him, he has the New York Republican delegation turning on him as well. Um, and, and this makes it more difficult because if Republicans start backing him, there's a lot of Biden carried districts that have a Republican representative in New York. This could provide a win for Democrats if he were to stay in the race and then lead to a bunch of infighting here. This could potentially be beneficial for Democrats. We seem to have lost Reggie to there. Oh, there he is. What he's, it may speak Sorry. to what he's trying to say. Uh, but at the end of the day here, you know, he didn't cooperate. And, and I think that also is speaking a little bit loudly here. All right. We, sorry, we lost you there for a second. OK, one more thing I have to ask you about is that uh, we'll talk about Donald Trump being on the campaign trail and some of the language that he used this week. Like, boy, it had people going, what what is happening? 
Yeah, I mean, look, the language he used uh, had people saying, look, this is the language that Hitler used to use. This is the language that Mussolini used to use. And it's not uncommon to hear Donald Trump use words that are uh, that are you know inappropriate or, or face kind of criticisms. But his team is doubling down on it, saying, look, the people that are coming out and criticizing Donald Trump, you are the people that are going to be crushed when we retake the administration here, kind of, you know, acting in that way of saying, look, I'm going to be a president and I'm going to quash anybody who has anything negative to say about me, the kind of things that we just heard Joe Biden talk about what takes place under, you know, a, a presidency like Xi Jinping. What this does, though, Simi, is it, it expands on another issue that's kind of been bubbling up in the news is that Donald Trump has a team that's working to put together a bit of a shadow government here. So when he comes into power, the plan is to replace a whole bunch of bureaucrats with Trump loyalists to avoid being in the situation that he was in last time around, where adults in the room wanted to take control. If he's got loyalists around him, it makes it much easier to shut down people who are... And I think we lost Reggie again. What a Trump administration oh, could look like. Okay, so that happened again. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you know, I was just thinking as you were saying that, though. So essentially, he wants his four-year, potential four years, to be more like what his last two months in office were like. Yeah, I mean, look, he wants the next four years to be like the four years that he that he thinks that he still owed because he still thinks that he won that election. And and there is growing concern here that this is not going to be a president if he wins. It's not going to be a presidency for the people of of America. This is going to be a presidency of revenge for the election that he lost. So, you know, there's concern here. There's also concern amongst the Democrats to me because he and Joe Biden are tied right now. And there's a lot of, right. you know, growing chatter that maybe a third party candidate's going to jump into the mix here and spoil it for everybody. And then the country won't know what to do when there's a president elected, not from the two parties that exist. Always interesting what's going on down there. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That's Reggie Tacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News. This is Mornings with Simi. Do gig workers in BC need more protection? So gig workers are the people who deliver you food like DoorDash and Uber Eats, or maybe they drive you places like Lyft and Uber. The jobs are flexible. They can pick their own hours, but there isn't a whole lot of protection. So the province has been studying this and they announced that they will add some new protections for app-based ride, hail, and food delivery workers. So there'd be a minimum earning standard. It would require companies to register with WorkSafe BC and pay premiums. So there are pros and cons to the changes this morning. Joan Arnick is with us, an Uber driver in Victoria to talk about this. Good morning, Joy. Good morning. Hey, well, let me ask you, what do you like about your job? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? That's a great question. Well, I'm, I'm a retired bus driver, so I you know, um, work when I want, when I feel like it. Um, my wife and I are retired, so we just went to Europe for three weeks. I didn't have to ask anybody. We just got on the plane and went. If I don't turn on the app, then I'm not working. It's awesome. Okay. Do you think, though, that there are some aspects maybe where you need a little bit more protection? Uh, not me personally, but some of the drivers for sure. I mean, I, I if if they didn't treat me right, this company or any other company, I would just leave. I just wouldn't work there anymore because um, I don't really have to. It's an enviable position for me, which is nice. But, uh, you know, we have some drivers that have quit their um, day jobs and now they're working full time for Uber. And uh, and so they certainly can use some more protections. I mean, it's always um Nice to have security with your job, whatever it is, right? Right. You sound like the the prototypical person that they're looking for, right? Somebody who is doing this on the side, you know, when they can, when they want to. But, Joy, so you have seen, though, people who are struggling. Well, I don't know about struggling. It's just there's a possibility. Here in Victoria, we haven't had uh, Uber very long. It's only got here last in June of 23. Um but in other cities where there's a lot more people trying to do the job that they have more, they struggle a little more, but, um, so I personally am not having any issues at all. Okay. So what, what do you think would help then? So you heard that they want to include you in what kind of work safe BC have that minimum wage. Also the other side of things, people like the BC Federation of Labor say this didn't go far enough and workers need more protection. But what do you think of what was announced yesterday? Well, you know, what's really interesting is that in in the whole time that I've worked for them, um, 
they'd never have to top up my wages on that on that program they've got the 20 percent over over um, minimum wage i've every single time i've worked you know every shift i've done every week that i've worked i've i've made more than that comes out to like 20 dollars an hour i've made more than that every single week so um for me they're not going to top that up very much but when i worked for skip the dishes um you know, because it was the same kind of thing, just gig work on the side. I quit working for them because I didn't make that. I didn't come anywhere near close to that. So, you know, my time's valuable enough that if they're not going to pay me enough, I'm not going to stay. But if they're in a position where they have to work there, then, then yeah, they sure should, should have some protections. I mean, it's uh, um, WorkSafe BC is always a good thing to have, uh, you know, if you get hurt on the job, I mean, those are protections and those are good things. That It's not, you know, I don't see anything bad in that. I'm not sure about going too far because I worry that um, in order to make companies do, um, you know, do all these things, then they still have to make money. So then they're going to take back on, on something. Um, and that's going to be my flexibility, right? That's all I have. Right. So for you, this works. Do you think what they did is fine? You don't want to see them do more? Well, they could do more as long as they don't take away my flexibility. (laughs) You know, that's all. Okay. just that's the line for me. They they change the flexibility. That's a problem. Yeah. Right. So you like it. So how often would you say you work? I, on average, probably about 20 hours a week. Like whenever you feel like work. it. And it's just whenever I feel like it. Yeah. If I get up in the morning and think, hmm, maybe I'll go. I own a Tesla. So it's uh, for me, I don't have the same costs other people do with gas cars. Um, and I, uh, you know, I love driving the car. It's a beautiful thing to drive. So <laughs> you love to drive, though. Morning. You're a retired bus driver. I get that, yeah. right? You love driving. No, I'm a driver. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, listen, <laughs> Joy, thanks so much for joining us on the show this morning. You bet. All right. Thank Appreciate you that. very much. Have a good day. All that's right. that's Joy Nernick, who's an Uber driver in Victoria, talking about how it works for her, right? She's a gig worker. She said it gives her flexibility. These new rules that were announced yesterday by Labor Minister Harry Baines won't take that away. There was concern uh, from the people who like the flexibility, like Joy, that they would do that. They would. They won't. However, on the other side of things, organizations like the BC Federation of Labor are not happy with this. They say that there should have been more done for uh, the people who work in these settings. So there is a minimum earnings standard. Uh, there is a way to top up the earnings if they fall below that standard. There are uh, things like you know contributing to WorkSafe BC, but there is that, that's as far as kind of protections went on that. So there's you know both sides to this, but Joy's happy doesn't want them to interfere with the flexibility. This is Mornings with Simi. Next week will mark 60 years since the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. And despite all of those decades, there are still questions about how it all happened and who did it really. Mary Haverstick has spent years looking into it and believes that we have overlooked something very, very significant in all of this. Why hasn't anyone ever considered the idea that women were involved? Mary is an independent filmmaker and author of The Woman I Know and joins us now. Mary, thanks for being here. Oh, Simi, thanks for having me today. How did you get into all this? Well, I I kind of fell into it. I was trying to do a story about a woman at uh, the early days of NASA who was fighting for her rights to become an astronaut. And uh, I felt I received a warning from a a government... uh, a woman who worked in the Department of Defense, who I met very briefly, spoke to me about concerns about the films uh, in a way that made me wonder if there was something classified in the NASA story. And that's what caused me to look into what I had uh, and to also confront the woman I was working with, who was Jerry Cobb, an early female astronaut candidate in 1960, uh, to see if there was something wrong with the project. And indeed, I believe there was. Okay, what happened? Tell us what you learned. Well, Jerry, it seemed, had this incredible, almost duplicity with another woman named June Cobb, who was a CIA agent, who was, you know, over there trying to get rid of Castro. And she was doing all these daring exploits for the CIA, but she was also very 
you know, underappreciated and under-researched. And this woman is known because all of her files, CIA agent Jude Cobb, all of her files were released as a part of the JFK assassination investigation in which she was all enmeshed and entangled. In what way? Well, partly because of her work with Castro, which ultimately, let's remember, our country was trying to assassinate Castro at one point. And June Cobb was very enmeshed in those operations, as I discovered. And I outlined in a book, that's a new discovery, uh, that that a woman was so central to those uh, missions. So then, unfortunately, June Cobb started to have tangles to Lee Harvey Oswald. And I discovered the fact that this June Cobb CIA agent, and I use that carefully because that could just be a name that's used for her in the documents or an alias, because these people that are in undercover work, they take on and toss off names on the regular. So the concern was, why is June Cobb so enmeshed in these documents and surrounding the JFK case, and in particular surrounding issues regarding Lee Harvey Oswald himself? And do you believe that it had something to do with the fact that we're talking about women here that did investigations at the time not look into women who may have been involved? Big time. And I think not only did the Warren Commission just, I mean, it was just an assumption uh, that the women weren't very involved. There was another assumption that female CIA agents weren't really doing very much. On and on these assumptions went. Now, if you were a person in the CIA or in any kind of nefarious activity, it certainly would be a, would have been a very smart move in the 1960s to couch your covert operations in the skirt of a woman. Huh. And do you think maybe some of that happened? Absolutely, I do, because another concern I developed, a tremendous concern, was a woman called the Babushka Lady who was on Dealey Plaza. She was only feet away from President Kennedy when he was shot. She was aiming a camera at the president. And if you take a look at the footage regarding the Babushka, well, number one, why wasn't she sought as a person of interest? Okay, she wasn't. She just walked off the plaza after, you know, possibly filming or maybe not filming the president, never came forward with her footage and became one of the biggest mysteries of all time. Yet no one even considered the possibility that this woman may have been up to something nefarious. Now, where did you dig for all this information, Mary? I live in Pennsylvania, where I'm talking uh, to you from now. And luckily, I'm only about uh, an hour and a half from the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, outside of D.C. And so I was able to go down Uh, regularly and pick up documents from the archives and create the entire collection for June Cobb and other actors that were involved in the JFK records. And I was able to compile timelines and do a lot of research based partly on my proximity to the archives. And uh, does it feel a bit like falling down a rabbit hole sometimes? (laughs) Well, it certainly does. But I think the thing that kept me grounded is keep in mind, my search started because of a woman I know, a woman I was you know, profiling for a movie, the NASA woman, I immediately confronted her about possibly having a double identity with June Cobb. And she denied it technically, but then she invited me into her life to find out a whole lot more about her. And she loved the fact that I had discovered her duplicity with June Cobb. Did it just give you this idea that, boy, there are so many mysteries from back then, things that will will we ever be able to find out definitively, do you think? I made sure not to present my book in definitive light because I think it's important to present what you know and what you don't know. What I do know is that I found some clues, very important ones regarding this women, these women that have been completely overlooked by historians who were mostly male. And I also was told by Jerry herself that she was in Dallas in a flight trying to escape Dallas on the day Kennedy died, another very important piece of information. So, yeah, I think these women were totally overlooked. And Mary, why do you think we're all still so fascinated by this? I mean, it has been 60 years, and we still seem wrapped up in trying to find out what happened. I think the death of President Kennedy, if we're really honest with ourselves, it really did bend the arc of history. Right. And we lost a number of leaders in that time period with Martin Luther King and then Robert Kennedy. And those three deaths taken together, but even just President Kennedy's, he was moving towards some 
more peaceful, more moderate resolution, say with Russia, with his back channel to Khrushchev during the missile crisis. And I think there were some opportunities for a more, um, I don't want to say peaceful resolution, but a more moderate resolution instead of some of the other hardliners who were pushing for a very militaristic view of Russia and in our foreign policy. And I think some opportunities were really missed there. And so listening to all of this and absorbing all this information, Mary, like what are the questions do you think we need to ask ourselves? I personally feel that the the, uh, assassination of President Kennedy should be revisited in a very serious way. Now, I can say that here and that probably doesn't carry a lot of weight for (laughs) Congress isn't going to rush on my say so to do so. But I think there have been there are four thousand three to four thousand documents still being withheld by President Biden and President Trump also withheld those. That's a Republican and a Democrat in America agreeing to withhold these documents. Why? And I think there is a reason why. And I think America needs to take a look at that or we're not going to be able to solve some of our current problems, which in some ways with January 6th and some other divisions are a bit of a repeat of history. All right. Fascinating case. Mary, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate it. It's Mary Haverstick. Mary is an independent filmmaker and the author of The Woman I Know, talking about the Kennedy assassination 60 years and still fascinates, and still so many questions. This is Mornings with Simi. Now to the Surrey policing situation. Now, the story took another turn yesterday when the entire Surrey police board was suspended and an administrator appointed to oversee the transition to the Surrey police service and away from the RCMP. Why take these steps? What will this do? Well, for more on that, we're joined now by the Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Okay, so what, what, will, this, what will this do, appointing this administrator? Well, what this will do, it will allow, I think, for a, a much smoother uh, transition uh, in terms of moving to the Surrey Police Service. It will allow uh, and ensure that some of the issues that I'm concerned about in terms of the lack of progress by the city of Surrey will be addressed, particularly when it comes to things such as uh, uh, budgeting uh, and hiring, uh, and that uh, um, the, uh, made the decision based on the advice I received from my director of, of police services, along with um, uh from my uh, the strategic advisor that I had uh, put in place to uh, to assist in terms of moving the transition along, and this was felt that this would be the most efficient way uh, to uh, to move things to the next stage. The board has done a a good job. They've they've worked very hard. Uh, they've taken it, I think, at this point as far as they can go, and it now needs. Uh, um, that's why I put in the administrator to take it to that next step. So, had no progress been made in the last month? I know there was concern that Surrey wasn't returning calls, that there were no meetings. So, what happened in the last month? There's been a there's been a lot of work on the uh, on on between the uh, the Surrey Police Service, uh, the uh, RCMP, uh, and the, 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 there's a, tri, a tripartite group in dealing with a number of the issues. But I think there's some key issues that have to be addressed uh, by the city of Surrey, in particular uh, budget uh, uh, for the remainder of the year, budget uh, in, in for the the 2024 fiscal year. And those things need to be addressed. And that's why I put in an administrator, um, the retired, uh, recently retired uh, chief of police from the city of Abbotsford, who has, uh, you know, a decades-long career in policing, who understands policing, and will be able to, to work to put together that budget that will go to the city and then be able to move things forward. Was that information, that budgetary financial information from Surrey, was that not forthcoming? Um, we have there's a number of things where we just haven't seen the progress that we expect from the city of Surrey, and uh, you know budget is is obviously one of them, and that's a critical part of of any transition, and so uh, that's uh, uh, work that needs to to be underway, and the administrator will ensure that that gets done. Okay, so how how will this work then? If if the police board if if there wasn't the information before, how is this administrator? going to be compelled to get that information? Well, the administrator is the one who will be putting together the budget. Um, they, the administrator assumes the functions of the police board. So all the functions of the police board, in effect, the administrator is now the police board. Uh, and so the uh, administrator will be putting together the budget, and that budget gets submitted to, uh, to the city of Surrey. Now, I know there was some response from uh, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke yesterday on this. Did you have a chance to tell her this ahead of time? 
Yes, I did. I, uh, I did speak with the, uh, the mayor ahead of time. Um, I outlined to her that uh, uh, what uh, I was doing and, and, the, uh, and who I was appointing. Uh, and so I, I did speak to her. In fact, I spoke to all the, uh, the board members uh, ahead of time. Okay. And she has said that, you know, this takes away the civilian oversight. This is a provincial takeover of policing. How do you respond to that? Well, um, it's not a provincial takeover of policing. It, what we're doing is ensuring that the Surrey policing transition continues. Uh, and as regards civilian oversight, uh, I'd point out that uh, the administrator is, in fact, a civilian. Um, he's a retired police officer, but he is uh, a civilian. And I'd also make the observation that, um, you know, with the RCMP, there was no police board. There was no civilian police board. Do you have any budgetary concerns here, given how long this has been going on? I know that was what Surrey Council was saying, is that they're concerned about the costs. Well, the, I, I think the, the, the real concern is the fact that the more this is delayed, that's what adds to the cost. So if the city keeps delaying or, or tries to delay, then that's what is increasing the cost. Uh, that's why we put the $150 million uh, on the table, and that $150 million was based on uh, the city of Surrey's numbers. Uh, to assist with the uh, with the transition, um, that's why I'm confident now that uh, we've put in the administrator. We will, you know, the, as I said, the the board and the members who had done a, I think a, a really good job have taken it as far as they can go, and now the administrator is going to take it that next step forward. Okay, and what is the timeline now like then? If this speeds things up, what are we looking at? Well, I think the uh, the the expectation is that we're probably looking about a year, um, perhaps eighteen months, but uh, I think all of us want this. To, to move along, I know the administrator uh, is certainly not looking at this as a permanent uh, as a permanent position, uh, and so probably looking about a year, and then after that, uh, we're looking to to reinstate uh, to reinstate the board, um, and that uh, members who are on the board and wish to continue uh, would certainly be uh, reappointed. Okay, and where does this put the whole the legal situation? I know the city of Surrey is looking into kind of legally challenging this. Does that does this change anything? No. No, that doesn't. That's a decision of the city of Surrey, and you know they're they're making their decisions, deciding to do what they do. But that has no impact in terms of uh, either stopping or slowing the uh, the transition to the Surrey Police Service. Okay, so it's all full speed ahead. That's what we want to see happen. Yep. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks. Appreciate that, Mike Farnworth, Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. You heard it, full speed ahead for the transition to the Surrey Police Service. They anticipate that the administrator will be uh, undertaking this work for about a year, and that's it. They will reinstate the, the board after that, the Surrey Police Board. But they said they needed to get some progress going, particularly on the area of the budget. Now, that's going to be the cost, right? That's what Surrey residents are most curious about, is what are the costs going to be? Found a way in, simi at cknw.com, but... It is a story that just keeps on going, isn't it? And there'll be more to discuss on that for sure. But yep, keep those comments coming. You can also call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899.